You're listening to Voices Not Victims, empowering you to share your story, eliminate shame, shatter the victim label, and lift up your voice. Welcome, everyone. I'm so grateful that you're listening along today, and welcome to the Voices Not Victims podcast. I'm your host, Katie McMahon, and the creator of Voices Not Victims. This episode is going to be really awesome and insightful because I was able to sit down with Jake Sticka from Next Gen Men. If you don't know about Next Gen Men, it's this amazing organization based out of Canada that is doing a lot of work with students and communities to help transform masculinity. They're really doing a lot of work to change the way that we see masculinity. I was able to have a really inspiring conversation with Jake in this episode. We talk about some really innovative work that Next Gen Men is doing. Jake is the co-founder and executive director of Next Gen Men. He is a passionate speaker and facilitator focused on gender-based issues related to the social and emotional development of young men, the health and well-being of men in communities, and gender equity in workplaces. Jake was named one of Avenue Magazine's Top 40 Under 40, as well as having earned recognition from Ashoka, the British Council, and the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion. He has spoken at the United Nations as part of the Canadian delegation and participated in the UN Women Safe Cities Initiative Global Forum and is a proud advisor to the Calgary Immigrant Women's Association as well as Canadian Women in Sport. So Jake is just doing some really great things in the world and I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation and feel inspired. So thank you so much um, for joining me today. I wanted to kind of ask about how Next Gen Men began. Like, can you walk us back on how it got started? Sure. There's actually kind of two origin stories. Um, One is obviously the kind of professional founding of the organization, but there's lived experiences behind those. And so um, I'll start with with the one. Um, And in 2014, um, I read an article written by Rachel Giza in The Walrus called The Talk. And it was about a sexual health education program for junior high age boys. And it wasn't strictly, you know, sex ed in the sense of like anatomy and putting condoms on bananas, but it started to dive into kind of topics around masculinity and um, gender and those kinds of things. And, you know, I just thought to myself, uh, having grown up in, in Catholic school and, and from an East European family where we don't really talk about those kinds of things, uh, I probably would have benefited from something like this when I was a kid. And at the time as well, um, I'd been fundraising for the Movember Foundation for five years, and they had a call for proposals out for new ideas to change the face of men's health in Canada. And I was working at a tech startup, and so I fancied myself entrepreneurial, and I said, you know, here's this nugget of an idea, here's this funding opportunity. Uh, I reached out to my best friend who was working with at-risk youth, and I said, hey, do you, do you want to pitch this with me? Uh, we made it through the first round of pitches, and we needed a bit more credibility, so we tapped uh, another uh, for now really good friend, but kind of more acquaintance at the time on the shoulder, um, who also worked in public health. And he was actually the one who originally shared that article on Facebook that I read. And uh, lo and behold, you know, three knuckleheads who'd never done anything like this before uh, received funding for our first two years. So that's kind of the organizational origin story. But in terms of lived experiences, so Jamal is one of my co-founders and my best friend from university. Uh, Unfortunately, his 13-year-old brother died by suicide in 2007. And um, he was a racialized youth and uh, was experiencing homophobic bullying. And um, 
So that was something that, um, you know, Jamal and I went through, you know, me obviously just in, in a supportive capacity. And then in uh, 2007 would have been that year as well. And then again in 2009, I guess, um, I was struggling with my own mental health, depression. And a lot of that came down to really ideas around what it means to be a man. Stuff like, you know, you can't show emotion, you can't ask for help, you got to be tough. And those two experiences, I think, gave us a unique perspective of wanting it to be different for the next generation. And um, we chose working with 12 to 14-year-old boys because obviously that was around the age that Jamal's brother passed. Um, but we didn't want to just support the boys who were on the receiving end, but we also wanted to support the boys who may have been dishing the stuff out, right? Because they're they're doing it for a reason and it's a misguided reason and there's an opportunity to intervene so that they're in a better position for their lives. So those, those are kind of the two origin stories and and how they converge. Wow. I mean, that's taking such a painful situation and using it to platform something so powerful for, you know, the generation growing up right now. And I know from working in the schools myself, They always say that the students that sometimes, you know, act out or kind of look for love in the most unloving ways are the ones that need it the most. Yeah, I connect with what you're saying. Totally. And I mean, you know, we live in a culture where we talk about male power and, you know, uh, we, we build boys up to be athletes and CEOs and successful and all these kinds of things. But when you're a 12 to 14 year old boy, you feel pretty powerless, right? You, your parents tell you what to do. Your teachers tell you what to do. Your coach yeah. tells you what to do. And so unfortunately at that age, they start wielding power within their social circles. And that's mostly in and around difference. So that's why we see spikes in racism, homophobia, misogyny, uh, all those types of issues uh, in and around that age. And, and they're you know, losing that innocence of boyhood and starting to act like what they think it means to be a man. So it's, it's a really ripe age to, to kind of disrupt. Yeah, that, that is a critical age. So what do the programs look like that you work with that age group to help build masculinity and kind of reintroduce new ideas? Totally. Well, I have to couch this answer with uh, pre-COVID times and post-COVID times. <laughs> right. <laughs> In pre-COVID times, um, we ran uh, after-school programs, uh, 10 sessions, and uh, the modules went on a bit of a journey, and, and the, the journey was built on, on three pillars we'd identified. Uh, first is self, self-esteem, self-awareness, self-love, self-acceptance, because we believe that you know, going back to my anecdote about, you know, power and and difference and those kinds of things. If you have a strong sense of self and okayness with who you are, you're less likely to, you know, push others down and and try to um, build yourself up on the backs of others. So so that's really important to kind of locate yourself. Um, And then we move on to health. So we talk about mental, physical, and emotional. And, uh, you know, those being foundations, we, we know that men die on average five years earlier than women due to um, lack of health-seeking behaviors and, and help-seeking behaviors, as well as increased risk-taking behaviors. That uh, mental health piece, uh, you know, three out of four suicides are men, and, and we see 4,000 suicides a year in Canada. Wow. Um, and then, you know, that physical piece, that, that's a piece that I think a lot of people talk about a lot and we see a bit more, but uh, it, it kind of plays into all of those things as well, too. And then finally, kind of once we've, we've built that individual up, we start talking about others. And that's, you know, diversity, inclusion, healthy relationships and those kinds of things, because, you know, you feel good. So it's like, OK, how do you bring that goodness to your interactions with other people and make sure that, that they're good and that they, they're, you know, getting what they need in their world. Yeah, and I feel like what you said about starting with the self is so important because it it does start with like the inner work before the outer work comes and building that up. What are like some practical ways of working on mental health in, I guess, young boys or that middle school age that you touched on? 
I mean, sometimes it feels even really dumbed down to talk about, but it's it's really easy. Um, mm-hmm. Like a quick example is, so we obviously have snacks as part of our program because, you know, 12, 14 year old boys are burning a lot of energy. Yes. And in the program, you know, day one, we establish a ritual that, you know, in order to get your snack, you have to compliment someone else. And um as young men, you know, that's like a jarring proposal. And so like the first week, it's like, uh, uh, I, I, I like your shoes, right? And, yeah. and then you get the snack. But then you see kind of a journey of transformation through the program. And eventually it's like, you know, in this class, this day, this happened, and you were really there for me. And I really appreciated it. Right. Wow. And like, if you can teach a 12 to 14 year old boy that, that and then that carries on, to you know an adult uh, man you know there i grew up in a time where you'd be like love you man no homo right you couldn't Mm -hmm. even express intimacy right and and building those skills and those muscles early on then has kind of a trickle effect later um where where these people can you know experience uh that wholeness i love that i love the idea of giving a compliment and I can just picture from the kids I've worked with how, like, it is kind of out there for them at first when you put that on them. But just hearing that that progress over time is really incredible to hear. And, yeah, like, what a great way to instill that at a young age for that to carry over throughout their lifetime. And if you look at, you know, young women, oh, my God, your hair, it's so fabulous. Like, you know, they're building each other up. And I don't get me wrong, you know, we talk about all the things that, you know, clickishness and, and all that stuff, the, the stereotypes we see within women and girls, but that's a huge difference of, of building each other up and, and tearing each other down, which, which like the masculine dominance and competition often does. Yeah, I guess this is kind of a follow-up question. With those students that you work with, are you seeing kids that start at like 12 to 14 and continue throughout into high school? Is it like a long-term process? Yeah, unfortunately, um, we haven't built up to a place where we can kind of have that like life cycle approach that, you know, broad brushstrokes, that would be a dream for me. Um, But we do, because the demand is so high where we work to go through those middle schools over and over. um, And like... If, I, if I'm thinking about a success story, I'm thinking about, I, I often think about this one letter we got. So at the end of the conclusion of the program, our facilitator writes each of the boys a handwritten note and, and affirms something about them that they really appreciated through the process. And uh, a couple of years ago, we got an email from a grade nine boy who'd taken our program in grade seven talked about how impactful it was to him and said that he was having a hard day but found the note from our facilitator and how much it meant to him and if i think about that you know that that story in and of itself is nice but what's beneath that is a young man who can express vulnerability who can reach out to a resource that he's used who can uh, talk about his emotions and who is inevitably set up with way more resilience in his life. Yes. Yes, that's powerful. I know I'm talking at a conference next month on consent education, and one of the components is expressing emotions and being able to be open and express emotions. Um, So that's something that I hope continues to build in all of our schools. I know I'm over in the United States, so I know we definitely need it here in some of the the states that we're not quite always um, targeting that, but I'm hoping that's something that will definitely spread. We we may feel like there's a big difference between, you know, Canada and the U.S., but, you know, we're not perfect up here, too. There's so much work to be done on this, and and really it is a generational thing. Way too many uh, negative outcomes are happening because of, you know, the the patriarchy that we live in. And, um, you know, if I think about you talking about consent and, and tying that to emotion, like, when we as young men are socialized to man up, to tough it out, to dig deep, to grit through it, 
right? Like that, that starts at, you know, nine years old when you're told you're too big to cry and, you know, through sports and all those kinds of things. And then you come to a situation where you're in a, an encounter with someone and they say, this doesn't feel good but you have been conditioned to suppress your feelings. Yeah. You have no empathy for that, right? And so um, it's it's a huge bridge that you're talking about. Yeah. And I feel like, too, um, just listening to you talk about it, I know I started this podcast to kind of talk about trauma um, and help people share the work they're doing. And just thinking about how traumatic that is, too, to not be able to, to have to suppress emotions like that, to not be able to express them and be conditioned in that way, I feel like is a form of trauma too. Absolutely. And it, and it, it's, um, you know, in a lot of other aspects, we talk about microaggressions and this is a microaggression that men experience over the course of their lives. And in, you know, the world of masculinities and, and men thinking critically about gender, um, unfortunately, the majority of the entry points into these conversations are through trauma. It's through job loss, divorce, breakup, mental health, identity-based issues. One of the few transition points that are positive um, uh-huh. is the transition into fatherhood, right? Where they have a, a baby boy or a baby girl, and they're thinking about, you know, what is this individual going to experience from gendered outcomes, right? For girls, uh, oftentimes it's it's a knee-jerk, protective, uh, you know, I'm going to polish the shotgun when her boyfriend's around <laughs> yeah. versus like, I'm going to make sure the boys are better, right? Mm-hmm. Because, and then, you know, on the, on the boy side of things too, like we've all been in locker rooms, we've all experienced those shitty things that boys do and we want that different to be different for our son as well. And then, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, not to perpetuate the binary here, like if our newborn baby comes out as, you know, non-conforming or genderqueer or whatever, like what kind of a world do we want for them, right? Yeah. So trauma is a, a really important lens to look at these issues through. I was thinking too, I know you touched on the compliment example, and I think that that's a wonderful example that I wouldn't have thought of at all. Um, How, so I guess this is kind of building on off that. How do you see accountability kind of take place in these young boys that are in the program? Like how do they keep each other accountable? Totally. So in the program, um, at the beginning, the facilitator crowdsources um, group norms, right? They agree on, you know, what does this mean for us? What is this space? What do we want from it? And then it's done on, you know, a big piece of poster paper and that comes out every time. And then, you know, when that's written out, there's something to hold each other accountable to. There's a standard there. Um, and that's a, a great and tremendous practice to, to instill early on as well, too. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pivoting now. You know, I, I talked about pre-COVID times. Now we're in post-COVID times. Right. We built a digital summer camp on Discord, right? And for the wow. people who don't know what Discord is, it's, it's a, a chat uh, platform that is primarily used by video game users. So, you know, if, if we're trying to reach 11 to 15 year old boys, we got to be on discord. <laughs> yeah. and so, so we built our summer camp there and, um, that's been an interesting experience in and of itself, but you know, we, the boys were like, we want a Minecraft realm. And so we built them a Minecraft realm and, Already, we've run into some issues around when different boys are offline, others are like pillaging the resources that they've made and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's a really cool exercise because we, you know, digitally sat them down and we said, well, what kind of world are we wanting to build here? What are the things that we want out of this? And so accountability plays a a huge role in that. And um, I think the tough part, you know, for those of us who work in this field and, and we can get so jargony. We talk about consent. We talk about uh, accountability and these kinds of things. And consent can be asking permission to uh, high five or hug or do something right. like that. And but we we as a culture are like no, that's sexual consent. 
And then if we talk about accountability, it's like, you know, someone's created or someone's perpetuated sexual harassment. So we need to hold them accountable. Accountability could be what are our agreed upon rules in the Minecraft realm, right? And so how do we break these big, scary, overwhelming concepts down into micro actions that, you know, through our behaviors early on inform our attitudes and beliefs as we go. And then often from our sector, we work so much on the attitudes and beliefs and the hope of behavior change, but often behavior leads uh, instead of follows. Yeah, that's genius about the video game platform. I mean, that's a wonderful way of reaching who you need to reach. Uh, That was actually one of the questions I had wanted to ask you about is implementing things post-COVID now that we are in a totally different situation, a different world. Can you tell me a little bit more about using that platform to reach them and maybe what parents or teachers could do during this time um, to keep working on these beliefs and principles? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I've told my team is uh, when we look around in these these strange times, there are going to be organizations, businesses, products, programs that fail because they don't matter anymore. They're not built for the time that we're in. Mm-hmm. But our core competencies are positive masculinities, mental wellness, gender equity, and healthy relationships. Those matter more than ever. And so the only way we fail is if we're too rigid in one way of doing things. And so for our youth program, you know, we took for granted that we ran through school boards for the last five and a half years. And now we're somehow on a discord server, right? Um, We took for granted that we can spark these conversations. I'm going to show you on the camera here. People on the podcast won't see it, but um, we, we made these cards for masculinity. Oh, I love that. There's 50 cards in this deck where, you know, if you're a parent or a teacher and you want to have a conversation with a young man about something, you can just pull it, right? So like I I just opened the deck here and the first one is, what are some things that can make you stressed? What are some positive ways to deal with those feelings, right? And then it's an open-ended question. And, you know, if the boy isn't ready to answer, then you role model it to them. You, you open up, you're vulnerable, you, you show them how someone might deal with these things. So that's one thing. Um, we used to have, you know, community dialogues in, in pubs, in communities. And um, now we, we meet on Zoom calls. Um, nice. we, we used to do um, corporate trainings. And uh, now I'm starting a book club. You know, so we're, we're pivoting and and rolling with the punches as best we can. That's really cool. What you just showed me. So it kind of mirrors cards against humanity kind of, is that what it's kind of looks like? (laughs) (laughs) At least the title on the box you showed me. We we did get an email from them that, you know, we may uh, be crossing a line there, Uh, but it's, it's not, it's not quite cards against mask or cards against humanity because that that's a game where you're kind of really trying to match two cards and you're trying to get a laugh and yeah. really what cards for ma- uh, cards for masculinity is about is um an open-ended question to inspire a conversation around what it means to be a man right there's no matching you know hopefully there's some good laughs hopefully there's some reflective conversation um so it was a little playful with the naming but the game is is different yeah yeah, and it I think that is a way of adapting during COVID because it's something you can keep implementing while we're all at home right now. So that's excellent. I also kind of wanted to ask, we're talking a lot about the programs that your organization is running and you gave some great examples so far. So I think that that's kind of painting a picture for um, what you are implementing. I wanted to just kind of dig deeper on what some of the learning and unlearning that you have observed about gender within the programs. Totally. I wouldn't even just position it within the programs. Um, I, I wanna answer that question even just within my own learnings and unlearnings. 
so often we doing this work talk about the work itself, the programs, and as if it was apart from us. And um, for me, I'm incredibly privileged, uh, you know, tall, straight, white, male. Uh, I lived a very privileged life. And then realistically, um, one of the few kind of oppressions that I, I experienced was patriarchy and that, that manifested in, in my mental health. And that really woke me up to a lot of different things, right? So if I think about the unlearning here, like, you know, oftentimes we take learning as new information we never had before. But the unlearning piece is taking the information we do have, realizing there's something better and unlearning that and then taking on that new information, right? And so for me, getting to a place in my mid-20s, seeing the world through one perspective and then taking a step back and being like, whoa, that's messed up, like, and going on that journey. So, you know, I'm still learning and unlearning every day and and unpacking those things. And um, even as we go, there was mental health was a huge catalyst. But, you know, once you start looking at the issue at hand, which which for us is patriarchy, you know, then you start seeing and, and building bridges to, you know, sexual harassment, sexual assault. You, you start um, building bridges towards um, the gender pay gap and representation in, in leadership roles. You start building bridges to the LGBTQ community and trans identities. And it's, it's nothing but growth. Um, I don't know. I hope that answers the question in, really? in some way. Yeah. Um, like it's yeah. always evolving. I think, I think, you know, uh, we were having an internal dialogue about this and I, I personally don't like the term woke, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like, I've arrived. I know, you know, now I'm awake. And I think it's more of a practice or a process. It's a posture of curiosity and, and openness and, and knowing that you're never going to be done. Yeah. I know from working in the schools personally, at least here in California, we have certain like a common core standards for the state of California for the children learning. And I think it's really great that right now the children growing up there, the emphasis is on process and it's not like right or wrong or getting the answer right or getting to the end. It's more like, what are, what are you learning throughout the process? And it's okay to make mistakes basically. And that it's, continuous, um, continuously adapting. I love that because I feel like that's something I personally didn't get growing up. Um, in my education, it, it was more like performance and now having the emphasis beyond process, I think is so important because that's kind of like the big picture as we get into adulthood too. Well, I mean, we can we can draw a thread to patriarchy within that, right? Like these systems were were built by men, and within patriarchy and and concepts of masculinity, there's achievement of status, right? Mm-hmm. And so once you achieve said status, whatever that is, you've arrived. There's no need for you to have that practice or that process and keep growing and learning. And now, as we've we've grown through this, we we know better. And so it's the, the period of translation from knowing better to doing better. We know that, you know, the most successful leaders are the ones that are open and curious and are growing constantly. Not that they've, you know, uh, gotten the promotion and they're just there. Right. Yes. Um, and so it's great that the education system is adapting to that because that, to your point, that's life. Right. And, um, you know, we also make jokes about, well, crotchety old white men and their perspectives, right? But if they've grown up in a culture where, you know, once you know what you know, and that's your absolute truth, it's really hard to see a different perspective and build empathy. But if you've grown up in a culture where you're open and you you see other people's lived experiences as valid and equal to your own, you're constantly learning, constantly growing, and you're understanding these things. And I think it's a reflection of a lot of this uh, social unrest that we're seeing right now, where, you know, people are, are like, oh, Ooh, I guess that was racist five years ago, right? But now we have language for it. Now we have frameworks. Now we we can start having these difficult conversations. And and for some people it's too fast, and for some people it's too slow, and that's causing a lot of tension. Yeah, definitely. And difficult conversations, I feel like, is definitely a good description for it because I think some stuff has persisted because 
of the uncomfortable nature of having difficult conversations where people don't feel comfortable kind of engaging in that or initiating that, but it's, it's necessary for the change. I have a post-it note on my monitor that I'm, I'm showing you on the camera and on it, it says <laughs> uncomfortable versus unsafe. And the important part for us is to have uncomfortable conversations, but we need to make sure they're not unsafe conversations. Yeah. Yeah. That that's perfect. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, what it looks like. How do you think someone could begin to transform masculinity in their immediate social circles? So I'm thinking people who are into adulthood now and maybe didn't get the opportunity to learn a lot of stuff that hopefully the next generation is picking up on and being taught. But if someone, like I'm thinking of an example, one of my good friends, I talked to her boyfriend as I was preparing for my podcast interviews, and he's a big proponent of mental health. So we talked about how he started in therapy, and then he kind of branched out to making that comfortable within his friendship circle. But I was curious your thoughts on that. That's a great example. Uh, just this morning, I was on a call with one of Canada's major banks, and and um, I think there was like something like two thousand employees on the line, or, or something like that. And um, it was about mental health and, and masculinity, and you know, telling them, you know, I've been doing Zoom therapy through this time of uh, you know physical distancing, and and role modeling that. So I think you know your friend's partner, yeah. um, and and his his work in and around that. That's a that's a tremendous example, and. The tough part for us, and again, thinking about the sector and the way that we work, we often remove men from their circles, right? And then we build them up and we, we teach them the wise ways of feminism and, and those kinds of things. And then we send them out back to their circles. But the circles that they're going into are unsafe for them. They're the locker rooms, the boardrooms, the pubs, where... Uh, misogyny is rampant where you know all these things are and you know you're the one guy at the table who's like oh that's not cool you shouldn't talk to the server that way your your friends uh, beat up on you and, and to man up right mm -hmm. and then you're like oh well I'm not going to try that again right so um, I think it's really important for us to go out into those circles to go to the locker rooms to the boardrooms to the pub conversations and start um, normalizing those cultures and those spaces and to your point about accountability oftentimes we talk about it in you know broad brush strokes like we need to hold the harvey weinsteins and the louis ck's uh, accountable but like you know, what are we doing with our boys? Like the people that are immediately proximate to us, you know, yes. are we covering for them? Are we normalizing their behaviors, right? Because every time they say something sexist that goes unchecked, we're, we're basically giving them permission to do it again, right? And, but when we say, nah, I don't stand for that, right? That's not cool. We're, we're actively changing that. And so, you know, those are some, some of those micro actions, I think, that, that people can take. Yeah. So it's basically kind of having the courage to start within your circle, maybe with keeping someone who says something that isn't, not PC, but yeah. is basically not supporting feminism or is, is not the greatest comment towards women or maybe some another population having the courage to kind of keep that in check in small steps. Is that kind of where you see that going? I'll use an example. So I have like a group of, there's five of us, really close friends. And uh, one buddy and I are, are very close. And I know that we're very much on the same wavelength about it, about things. And the other guys, they're not problematic. They're not bad. They're, they're you know, these, these things. But sometimes, you know, the social conditioning slips out and whatever happens, happens. And a recent example was in and around um, Kanye West and his recent struggles with public mental health breakdowns. Yes. And um, the way they were having the conversation was very stigmatizing in and around mental health. And it was easy for me to weigh in and say, hey, listen, we shouldn't pathologize like that. It's really sad and whatnot, because I knew that that one other buddy would have my back and would reinforce what I said, right? Mm, yeah. So we're changing that culture in our small group. But when you have a group and you're that one guy and you don't know 
who has your back or who you're on the same wavelength with, it becomes a bit harder. It becomes a bit more unsafe, right? And so, you know, if you you have that group of, you know, five, seven guy friends or whatever, and you know oh, that that one guy, he, he always talks about his dating and it's just not right. Like, I'm going to say something. Do you got my back, right? Have that conversation. Mm-hmm. And then if I can go on this a little bit as well too, like you ask for different ways. I think, you know, the reason I use patriarchy is it's an overarching system that affects people of all genders. And, um, you know, I, I identify as a feminist, we're a pro-feminist organization, but it's often not the first word off the tip of my tongue mm-hmm. because there's a stigma around it that it's for women. And we're doing okay. these interventions for the benefit of women and girls. And I think that's really important. But we as human beings always have this fundamental human question of what's in it for me, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we use the umbrella of patriarchy, we can show how men are harmed through that, right? Whether that be through mental health, whether that be through violence, whether that be through addictions and substance abuse, whether that be through XYZ myriad things, right? And so by understanding how these systems impact them, they're then able to build empathy and understanding for how it might impact others. And so, you know, I think that if we're trying to transform that in our immediate social circles, trying to better understand what those individuals are going through and reframing it for them, right? That, yeah. that we're all in this together. Yes. Yes. That, that was very well said. And I'm, kind of um, pushing that a little bit because I, as I've been learning a lot about consent education, some of it, the articles that I've read are about how um, we want to get away from the myth that it's like a miscommunication that happens, but more changing an entire like cultural norm and shifting cultural norms. So I, I see it as like, what can people do like in their first circle next to you versus like branching really far out to celebrities or people with big platforms, but yeah, like small actionable steps that someone can take. So I think that's well said that like keeping in perspective of uh, the systems that already exist. Yeah. And, sure. identi- and identifying ourselves within them, right? Like nobody exists outside of these systems. Like I don't exist outside of patriarchy. You don't exist outside of patriarchy. So how are our roles within that? And I think that's also, you know, why using the term toxic masculinity can be problematic because it's very easy to then be like, oh, Harvey Weinstein's toxic. I'm not toxic. Right. Mm-hmm. But what are the small little things that you do that give others permission to go down the path of becoming a Harvey Weinstein? Right. So yeah. back to that accountability piece by labeling those individuals as toxic, which they are. Right. But um, labeling them, it allows us to other them. It allows them to say, oh, I'm outside of that system. Yes. Yes, definitely. So I know too, kind of talking all about the mass, you know, masculinity, sorry, let me say that again, masculinity, um, multi-slavic word there. So I, you have lived in different countries on different continents. How do you think we continue to change this on a global scale? Totally. I think, again, it comes down to um, being culturally sensitive and understanding the differences. Um, because when we say the term masculinity, we, we have a monolith in our minds. And, and don't get me wrong, there are some norms that kind of perpetuate. So, you know, to get really nerdy in the, the, the theory side of things, you know, if we look at Connell's hierarchy of masculinities, there is hegemonic masculinity at the top of that. And when I think about what hegemonic masculinity might look like, I always think about James Bond, you know, mm-hmm. he's fit, he's fashionable, he's got cars, he's got women, he's got excitement and power, right? Like that is like the ideal in society that like media and culture pushes the majority of men to. Beneath that, we have um, the the middle step where most of us men exist. Beneath that, we have uh, marginalized masculinity. So that's where you start to see some of that intersectionality around race and um, other intersections, socioeconomic. So, you know, 
as, as much as like, let's say like a LeBron James is, you know, gaining power in society and moving up that hierarchy of masculinities, he often is barred from getting into that top upper echelon because of his racial identity. And then at the bottom, we have subordinate masculinities and, and that's, um, you know, uh, gay, trans, like people who are just like, screw masculinity, not like not, not even participating in this. And it, it puts us in this competitive nutshell. But the reality of it is, is that hegemonic ideal isn't singular. It's different place to place to place. So I've lived in, in Canada, Brazil, Germany, the Czech Republic. Uh, and a great example is uh, Brazil versus Canada or, or even North or, or even like Canada, America. Um, in North America, a hegemonic man, like if he was a great dancer, you would be like, oh, that's gay. That's weird. You know, like that, that's an outlier. In Brazil, everybody dances, right? And yes. the, you're more manly if you're a better dancer. And so these ideals change. And so it's really useful to have a framework like Connell's hierarchy of masculinities that you can plug in those different cultural contexts and start mapping it out rather than just saying, we're going to change masculinity globally because it's different. And, you know, in, in Brazil, there's, there's deep roots of, you know, colonialism. There, there is obviously in, in North America as well too, but where I lived was, was uh, Salvador, the original capital. So 3.5 million slaves from Africa were brought there. And it was that state of Bahia was 85% uh, Afro uh, descent, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're seeing this now in, in the States with the Black Lives Matter movement and people coming to really understand the origins of slavery and Black people in America. And, yes. and, this, and, and, and again, then this is why using words like patriarchy is useful, because one of the tensions in Black Lives Matter right now is I think people are learning there's a difference between a racist, a singular individual who is racist, and a systemic racist. Right. Yes. And so like people are like, oh, well, you know, racism is not as bad because we don't use the N word anymore. Not uh -huh. seeing that, you know, black individuals aren't getting the same education, the same health care, same opportunities. And that's because of these broader systems. So then when we name it white supremacy versus racism, a racist, then we're really getting at the root. Yeah. Within my own life, I grew up in Illinois, um, a little bit south of Chicago. And, you know, within my own state, I had to learn as an adult that from some of my friends that were more central in Chicago, that the south side of Chicago did not have hospitals. So if someone was shot in gun violence, they would die on the way to the hospital because there was not a hospital built in that part of Chicago. And I grew up in Illinois for a long time and it wasn't until adulthood that I even learned that. So I think being willing to see what we don't know and that there's a lot more to take in is so important. And the systemic piece, right, that you can pull out of that, right? Like if you think about urban planning in Chicago, that's a system, right? That's how we build our communities there was a highway built to segregate the north side of Chicago and the south side of Chicago, right? Yeah. So that's not a racist using the N-word against an, another individual. That's systemic racism. Yes. Yes. That's a great example. It runs deep in Chicago too. So I'm, I'm glad people are starting to realize like, okay, this didn't end with like, oh, the civil rights movement and now it's over. Like, no, this is something that is ongoing and that we still need to um, learn and unlearn a lot about. Totally. And, and that's that practice and that process, right? And, and we've learned that we haven't arrived and there's so much room to grow. And it can be, it can be really overwhelming, quite frankly, right? When you, you know, we just started talking about racial issues, but the, the podcast is about gender-based issues. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you can't extricate those things from one another. These are intersecting and overlapping systems. And, and like literally, you know, sometimes you can be just overwhelmed with this. And, you know, I'm a professional and I work in this field and you're working in this field and studying it. And, you know, how, how can we be empathetic to someone who is working in a field outside of this, 
um, Mm -hmm. who it's not a primary concern for them. Their primary concern is whatever their profession is and getting money uh, to pay for health insurance and put food on the table and a roof over your head. And then not, not, you know, beating them over the head that they don't know social justice, right? Like how can we be empathetic and be tutors and work with them and share our journey with them so that they can understand and augment their already valid concerns in their life, right? Like I'm seeing a lot of that happening right now too, where we're not being patient. And I know, I know that, you know, if you have experienced depression for a really long time, it's hard to be patient. And I, and I understand that, Yeah. but guilt and shame and blame are not places to grow from. No, not at all. And part of the reason I started this is because I wanted to help people. I mean, you can't completely remove shame if you've been feeling it for a long time. I think that's a process in itself too. But I know I remember the immediate shame I felt after my assault and it took time. And then finally it was like, wait, why am I feeling this? The person who did this should feel ashamed. Like I, I don't have to carry this and kind of help people start to remove that from their lives. Definitely. Totally. And that goes back again to having that trauma informed approach. Yeah. I'm, I was thinking while we were just talking that um, I know I keep circling back to the, the schools and the students, but I, I had a thought of like, from what I've seen, and, and I don't want to make assumptions that it's the same um, where you are, but a lot of times in the schools that I've worked in, a lot of the educators are white women. And I know I, I work in a school where there's actually no white kids at all. Um, so I'm just thinking about if the teacher is a white woman and we have students, um, maybe young males from different backgrounds, I guess what could they be implementing to um, help support positive masculinity with that perspective? That's tough. I mean, you know, it's something that we're existentially grappling with. Um, We do have uh, two, we're a small team of five people right now. We do have two female employees, but more often than not, you know, when we're hiring for, you know, frontline workers and stuff, it's pretty important for us to have male identified individuals leading these workshops, because if we're role modeling positive masculinity, it's not just talking about it. It's really difficult for a young man to absorb that from someone they don't relate to. And that's a really tough bridge to cross. And I think, you know, the work needs to get done one way or another. Like we know from from, uh, childhood development that it actually just takes one adult to care about a youth to have for them to have better outcomes. So if that happens to be a white woman, I don't want to say that's not your place to do that. But, you know, what can you do with that privilege to be, you know, leading these young men. And I think it's important to try to amplify and give them role models, whether that be through, you know, TED Talks or books or materials, who who they can look up to, who they can see that it's different. And, you know, the beauty of it, I remarked around this around Father's Day. I'm not yet a dad, but I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, starting my family within a couple of years and stuff like that. And just how lucky I'm I and my generation that we have so many visible role models of tender and committed and caring and nurturing fathers versus a generation prior. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, that's fatherhood, but you know, there's professional athletes talking about mental health. There's uh, professional athletes talking about consent. There's, there's people starting to stand up and speak out and, and we're seeing a shift in and around this. So, you know, how can we point to them? How can we inspire them? If, if, you know, we don't look like them, if we don't share their lived experiences, there's definitely something in this for everyone. I think that's so um, important about bringing in material that relates to um, positive masculinity like you said about the athletes speaking out on mental health and expose, it sounds like it's a lot about exposure and well, exposing the students to that. If I can, if I can interrupt, I apologize, but no, that's um, okay. a great example, I'm thinking about, you know, Chicago where you shared that with me, Dwayne Wade is from Chicago. Right. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, uh, prolific all-star won championships, uh, all this stuff. 
And I, I love Dwayne Wade as a father of a non-conforming child right now. And what he said was just, you know, my role is, is the same. I, I love them as they are. My job is to learn and unlearn so I can do better, right? And so if you're uh, a Black uh, youth in Chicago, like Dwayne Wade's your guy, right? You love that guy. And to hear him say something like that, that that's powerful. And so that's why we need to keep working. And I'm not saying that, you know, celebrities and rich people are, are the solution to the world, uh, world's issues. They're definitely not. But like, there's opportunities to provide inspiration uh, within those things that are culturally sensitive and culturally relevant. Yeah, yeah. And that too, is a positive use of a platform to reach an audience with a message that's really important. So I feel like that's a great example. Um, as well. So I kind of wanted to end on, do you have any, I know you mentioned the summer camps, do you have any other workshops or events coming up, you know, I guess during COVID or in the next uh, few months? Totally. So something that we were doing pre-COVID times was having monthly discussions in communities. And we were in seven communities across Canada. Um, we've moved those online. So those are Zoom, sh- Zoom sessions now, which, you know, it sucks that we can't be amongst people and, you know, crack a beer in the pub while we talk about these things. But mm-hmm. um, at the same time, the benefit is there's no borders, right? So yeah. people like yourself and, and people uh, in America can, can join us for these discussions. So uh, I hope people do. I know that in August, I think it's August 10th, we're actually doing a session on menstruation. And so, you know, uh, we, we, we talk about conversations men don't traditionally have, and we don't traditionally talk about menstruation. And so how can we, you know, raise our awareness about that issue that 50% of the population goes through, right? Yeah. Those are two quick examples. And, and those are happening on, on a regular basis. So, you know, if, if people are interested, I encourage them to, you know, follow our social media, sign up for the newsletters, all those kinds of things. Um, we do have the summer camp, as you mentioned, we have the cards that I, I showed you, uh, if people want to take, take this responsibility on and do it, uh, at home, um, I'm launching a book club, uh, for professional leaders who want to grow beyond their understanding that that's going to be happening in the fall. So, you know, there's lots of opportunities to, to engage if this is something you're interested in. Wonderful. That's awesome. And where can people find you on social media? Social media, all of the platforms are at NextGenMen. Um, if you do want to visit our website, uh, big difference, it's nextgenmen.ca for Canada, yes. not dot, .com. So you won't find us there, but it is .ca. Um, you know, we're, we're very Googleable. Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned some incredible programs, and I feel like this is stuff that needs to carry over to several states over here. Um, I mean, this is very innovative work and I haven't heard of um, a lot of these things that you've mentioned and they're very new and important. And I feel like this is great concepts and great implementation that can carry over into other places. Um, So my hope would be that people feel inspired and that that work continues across several places, not only in the States, but hopefully on a global scale too. Totally. That'd be a dream. So if you like the content in today's episode, please rate and review this episode, share it with a friend And check us out on Instagram at Voices Not Victims, Twitter at Voices Not Victim, and consider joining the Facebook group at Voices Not Victims. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Stay tuned because we've got some really awesome people coming on in the upcoming months, including nonprofits, survivors, and social justice groups. So please hit subscribe so you can get the latest information on all of that. And we will see you next time.